Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Mastering the Room, presented by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. And this one is a little different than the ones we've put out so far. This one is about what has changed in our politics. What has changed about Washington, D.C.? What has changed about Congress? And to me, the best way to get those answers is to ask people who have served in these positions for literal decades. We see these changes in our own personal experiences. We hear our parents or our grandparents talk about what used to be yesteryear and why everything was better and now is horrible. But maybe we're overestimating some of these changes. Maybe we're missing some of the other ones. But I wanted to ask two long-serving members of the House of Representatives about what they saw during their time and service and what they think about our politics going forward. So today in Mastering the Room, we're lucky enough to be joined by two longstanding former members of the House. First, a Republican from Miami, Florida, Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton. She was elected back in 1989, yes, the year Taylor Swift was born, and served until just a couple years ago in 2019, giving her nearly four decades in the lower house. She was born in Cuba. She was the first Cuban-American elected to Congress and even the first Republican woman from the state of Florida to be elected to the House. So that gives you a sense of how long she has been there. She was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee within the House, so a powerful position. And she was known to cross the aisle, particularly on social issues and especially later in her terms, which we talk about in the interview. On the other side of the aisle, we have former Representative Ron Kind a lawyer and a Democratic rep from Wisconsin. He was elected in 1996, so during Bill Clinton's tenure, and he served until just last year in January of 2023. He also served as a chief deputy whip under Steny Hoyer for the Democrats, and so he has a perspective of serving in a vulnerable district all while serving leadership, which represents the entire party. A good perspective there. And he famously voted against Nancy Pelosi in her effort to return to the speakership when Dems won back majority control a few cycles ago. He advocated early on that we need a new generational leadership, a point he still gains. So I'm excited about this conversation. They were incredibly honest, more honest than I honestly expected them to be. They break down what happened in terms of civility from member to member interactions. I asked them one vote they wish they could have back, and they each had one right off the top of their heads, and where they think our politics are going and what we can do about it as voters, citizens, and even representatives within Congress itself. So enjoy the conversation. Let me know what you think. It's a goodie. Let's go. We have two, not one, but two fabulous guests joining us here today on an episode I have been looking forward to. And it's broad, it is vague on purpose, and that is what has changed in DC? What has changed with our politics? And to help us tell that story, to personalize that story, we have two long-serving former members of the House of Representatives. One D, one R, again on purpose to kind of let us in to see what's changed with the institution, with the city, with our politics, and then even within their own individual parties, given that they served for decades and decades, not to age shame anyone on here, but y'all spent some time on Capitol Hill. And so I want to take advantage of that experience for our listeners to maybe dispel some things we might get wrong about our politics in Congress and maybe confirm some of their priors about 
uh, man, some of this stuff is tough, or maybe there's some good slimmers of of hope out there for how the place is working or not. We'll we'll see how this conversation goes. So, thank you, Representative Ron Kind, and thank you, Congresswoman uh, Ileana Ross Leighton, for joining us. We have Miami represented. We have Wisconsin represented. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Casey. So not to waste anyone's time, but let's jump right in here. I didn't give you much prep on this on purpose because I want your backs and forth immediately on, on without tons of reflection. But what has changed about Washington? You guys have literally served in these positions or had served in these positions for decades. You saw multiple presidents. You saw multiple iterations of your own parties. You saw a lot of things. So what has changed? Top of mind has changed about our politics. And Congresswoman, we'll start with you first. Well, thank you so much. Well, first, it's a pleasure to be on here, but how joyful to have my friend Ron Kind uh, do this uh, with us together. He's a good man. And we come from the old-fashioned Congress uh, when people were kind to one another. I'm not saying that we were holding hands and, and singing Kumbaya, but it was a much civil place. I was first elected in 1989 as a Republican. And the Republicans were such a small minority that the real fights took place within Democrats. So my election didn't make much of a ripple. Oh, it's just another Republican. Now, every election is a potential change election. The margins of a majority to minority are so small. I mean, Nancy Pelosi had five votes. Speaker Johnson right now has two votes, uh, depending on who's sick on a particular day. So every election is a change election. And that's why members are so skittish about getting too close to, for Republicans, getting too close to a Democratic member. You'll be looked upon as a rhino. So there's less trust. It's more cynical. And every vote matters because the campaign committees for both Democrats and Republicans are really looking at votes and uh, gotcha votes. And uh, it's, it's just really tough. There are few districts like mine that could go from Democrat to Republican on any election. When I retired in, in 2019, it changed to a Democrat, but then it changed back to a Republican. But there are only about 20 to 35 such districts. Most of the members are in super Republican districts or super Democratic districts. That changes the tone of Congress, wouldn't you say, Ron? Yeah, Casey, glad to be with you. And what a joy to be with Ileana, too, one of my more favorite members of Congress. And I tell people, you know, I left Congress last year. I do miss my colleagues, but I don't miss the chaos and the dysfunction. And let me just ditto everything that Ileana just said in regards to what's changed. But let's be clear, politics has always been a contact sport. When I was first elected back in 96, joined the Congress in 97, it was pretty tough back then, too. Things were pretty polarized on the House floor. Uh, there were high stakes, I granted. But I think what's happened now has been a decline in the respect for the institution, meaning a respect for one another as members of Congress. And that's taking time to get to know each other, be respectful to one another, uh, amplify our listening skills, listen to each other. I found through the years that by doing that, there's a lot of common ground that can be had and a lot of work that you can do together in a bipartisan fashion. And there seems to be a little less effort being put into that time that it takes to get to know people and build up that capital of trust, which is absolutely essential for a functioning Congress uh, to work, and the ability to compromise. And this gets back to Ileana's point about gerrymandered districts, is that the overwhelming number of districts now are heavily Democratic or Republican. So politically, there's not much incentive for those members representing those type of districts to reach across the aisle. 
to find compromise and common ground, or they might be punished by the overwhelming electorate that they're representing back home. So there are certain things that need to be fixed institutionally to help it function better, but you also can't ignore the rise of social media and the influence that has on the social discourse that we have in America, but especially the political discourse right now. A lot of members have figured out a way to uh, amplify their social media messages for political advantage and for fundraising purposes. And therefore, they're not that interested in accomplishments or results. They're interested in the scare tactics or pushing people's buttons because that's what's going to get them to react and to send you money. So those are things that I've seen degrade the institution. I'm not sure how to turn it around, but there are also still remaining a lot of members who do want to try to make it work. As evidenced last night with a passage of a foreign aid bill with 70 senators supporting it. So by definition, there was a lot of bipartisan support for that. So there are instances of clarity from time to time, just not enough, in my opinion, where they're trying to advance the ball and get something done. So the main word you hit, you nailed it, is the incentive structure. It seems like it has changed a little bit, and there's an infinite number of reasons that has altered that, right? We have the rise of social media, probably the media environment at large, right? You guys came up in a time where it wasn't the 24-hour news cycle. It wasn't playing to where it, we had sorted into our, I, whatever I want to hear, I have a news channel for that, or 50 of that, right? The echo chamber that we can surround ourselves in. So thinking about our incentive structures and the the, the small number of competitive districts, and you both represented some of the most competitive districts, right? Which is a good perspective to have because you're coming into your, your conference meetings or your caucus meetings and trying to voice your opinion where you're representing a competitive districts where everyone, almost everyone else in those same meetings of your own party don't represent those same interests. And so talk to me about, peel back the curtain a little bit about inside your caucus meetings, because we are realizing more and more how important these are. The conflicts are kept off the floor in that way. That's where you really hammer out your deals within your own party. What? How do you make your case of saying, you guys just don't get it. This is competitive. This is not my constituency. We don't need to go this far extreme. In fact, it will ultimately hurt a lot of folks, me included. So, Congresswoman, talk to me about how you, you make that pitch to colleagues who just simply don't hear that. And in, in their defense, that's not where their constituents are either. That's so right. And I agree with what you're saying and what Ron had said as well about social media being such a factor when we talk about the lack of civility, the lack of bipartisanship, the lack of compromise. Um, I remember when when I retired from, from Congress, uh, Donna Shalala, a Democrat, she had then won my seat, and she invited me to hear the president's State of the Union um, to be her guest. And of course, I accepted, and I got such terrible press. I was already out of Congress, but still very much a figure in the community. And they said, see, we knew she was a rhino. She's going to, she's, she's accepting this. It's a ticket to, to hear the president of the United States give a speech. And uh, so people sometimes say they want bipartisanship and they say they like civility, but they, they tend to, uh, to reward folks with, the, with their vote uh, who are the loudest uh, voices. And in those conferences, I won't talk for, about the Democrat, and Ron can do that, but in our GOP conferences, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, they're really tough meetings because the speaker or your leader will tell you, okay, this is the program for the week. We expect to pass this. And people who tend to 
echo that, will will rise up and, and say, yes, I think we should pass it. This is great. Rah, rah, rah. And it's sort of like what I would imagine a sports team locker room pep talk would be. But yet, even in these well laid out plans, you have some misfires. Last week in our in our GOP conference, what we had spirited discussions, but what happened on the floor, the impeachment of Mallorca's did not make it, and the standalone uh, bill to help Israel, to fund Israel, did not pass either. So two really tough defeats for the for the speaker and for the GOP, and for the first time since I can remember, this has been a year of the rule going down, and the rule is like the document that will guide and frame the debate on a bill. It tells you how many amendments will be discussed, how long each uh, the debate will be, and it's a procedural vote, right? It was assumed. That's right. It is assumed that that's a team. That's a team vote. Everybody votes. If you're a Democrat, you vote together against the rules. If the, if the Republicans are in charge, but but it's never been in question, and and yet in these past I don't know twelve months, we've had rules go down. We've had to had have appropriation bills yanked from the floor because we didn't have the votes to pass them. And that's what happens when the, when the margins are so slim, everyone becomes a secretary of state and everyone says, okay, if you want my vote, then you got to come lobby me. But that loyalty and that team effort, and I don't mean blind loyalty, I meant it's like a sports team. Uh, and, and, and you say, yeah, we're going to be in together and everybody's going to win you know, it's it's rough going right now for, for my party, and I hope that we can message it better and we can sell it to our to our membership. But for some people, uh, like in my district, sometimes what the Republicans want to do are not in accordance with what the constituents of my district might want. Now, Salazar, she replaced then Shalala. She's doing a bang-up job, and I wish her the best. But uh, but it's tough going, you know, because she's for more immigration reform than than maybe our GOP leadership is. So it's tough sometimes. You 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 don't want a member just to get along and go along. Each member deserves respect and deserves his or her views to be respected by the leadership as well. And and Congressman, you had a dual perspective on this because you served as deputy whip. Uh, so you were within those leadership meetings and it was your job to kind of be the information conduit from a lot of members from a lot of different perspectives and try to bring them into these meetings and hopefully come out with a resolution where you all are united because that's the goal, right? D's believe this, R's believe this, and let's have it out. But talk to me about what you heard from certain members about not going far enough on a piece of legislation or this is going too far and you're actually going to cost me my seat and potentially the seat for our party. So how do you walk that line as being part of a, a leadership team representing one of those very few competitive districts out there yourself? Yeah, that's right, Casey. I was one of those deputy whips and it was talking to members, finding out where their concerns are with a piece of legislation, for instance. But let me just back up and just point out one fundamental truism of Congress. Congress is a reflection of the American people. And right now, it's not just Congress that's deeply polarized, but the American people are. I mean, we're basically a 50-50 nation right now, given how close these national elections are. And that comes back in the representatives that they elect and how they conduct themselves. Now, my district was a classic swing district like Ileana's was too. So in an effort to reflect that and to represent them, I helped form what was known as the New Democratic Coalition, a group of more moderate, centrist, pragmatic House Democrats trying to build bridges, trying to figure out ways to get things done, 
preferably in a bipartisan fashion, rather than just there to throw bombs and to tear the place down. And I felt as one of the leaders of that group, it was my responsibility to speak up during our party caucus meetings and to point out the leadership. Listen, it's up to them to protect the majority. And as Ileana pointed out, both sides are operating at razor thin majorities. So you can't afford to lose two or three uh, seats in a given election year. So how leadership takes that and uses that to develop consensus within the caucus can also benefit rather than the far right and the far left, but the sensible center by not jeopardizing those seats and listening to those members from highly competitive swing districts and what they can or can't live with when it comes time to cast difficult uh, votes. And uh, being able to raise that in caucus and trying to, in my you know, point of view, push back from the far left of our party, try to get them more into the center of politics, which would be easier than for many of us moderates to go home and be able to sell that message and sell that agenda to the constituents that we represent. I love that phrase that you use, Ron, the sensible center. And I think so many of our constituents want that and, and they respect that. But you've got to convince them that, you know, you're fighting for their values and for their bills. And you've got to communicate with your constituents or you're going to be in really bad shape if they see, oh, you're not voting with your party very, very often. You know, those ratings from outside groups, they, they really make a difference in, to vulnerable, vulnerable members of Congress. We're going to come back to those ratings, those influences there where you guys as members are trying to think about your place in, in, in the institution and also represent difficult, diverse districts. But so we're going to pull that thread in a second. But I want to take a step back and ask you, what was your welcome to D.C. moment? Like you got elected. You're probably like, oh, my God, I actually have to do this job now. This dog caught the car. (laughs) When you got to the district, what was like, man, I don't really belong in these rooms. People trust me to make these decisions. Like what comes to mind when I ask like your D.C. moment? Congresswoman? Well, I was very blessed that when I got elected, it was a special election. It was the only election in the country. And we had a great chairman of foreign affairs, Dante Fassell. He was a Democrat, conservative Democrat from Miami. He was the chair of foreign affairs, and he knew that was the one committee I wanted. So to show you how things have changed, he came up to me and he said, Ileana, I don't have a seat yet uh, for you, but I'll talk to the speaker. We'll look look at the ratio, and here's where you're going to sit. So he put up a little card table and put a nice a tablecloth on it, and gave me a folding chair. And that's where I sat for about a month uh, as a member of the Foreign Affairs, but not formally a member. And uh, can you imagine a Democrat chairman making room for a Republican on his committee? So things have changed a lot, and. I got elected in a special, so I got elected on a you know Tuesday and was sworn in on Thursday. I had a trial by fire. I didn't get to do any of the orientation or, or any of those wonderful uh, courses that they have now for uh, Welcome to Congress. So my Welcome to Congress moment was trial by fire. And I'm lucky that I was a survivor, but it was, it was tough. And uh, we have a lot of good flights between Miami and D.C., so I would fly home every weekend. But for some folks, I don't know how it is for Ron, it's hard to get back home sometimes. And uh, Congress then changed from a, a university campus to more of a computer commuter community college. So people lost that kind of thread with other members of Congress because you would leave. I would leave on Thursdays to go back to Miami. And I think that changed the nature of Congress as well. Before, people used to live there and your kids would go to school here. So it makes a difference. You don't get to know 
you know, Ron Kind as a person. You just know him as a, as a Democrat fighter. And hey, I, I'm against that amendment because he's from he's a Democrat. And I, I hope that one day we'll get back to seeing Ron Kind and people as, as they are good, good, well-meaning people who just happen to be from another party. But it's rough out there right now. And I think the welcome to Washington moments that new members are having is pretty harsh. You just have to come out like a slugger and not a, a consensus builder. Congressman, what room were you in where you're like, man, what am I doing? Well, I, I was just a third Democrat in 140 years to represent that largely rural western Wisconsin district. But I was very fortunate, Casey, because my predecessor was one of those sensible, moderate Republicans by the name of Steve Gunderson, who helped show me the ropes, introduced me to a lot of his colleagues on his side of the aisle, and he kind of pointed me in the right direction. This was someone on the Republican side you, you'll be able to work well with. This is someone probably not as well. So he gave me that type of help and advice. But like most mem new members, a lot of my focus and concentration was back home in the district that I represented, especially given that it was a very competitive swing district. So I was one of those commuting congressmen every weekend running home to the district to work it. And I kept the family there, my wife, and we had uh, a newborn child, our first son that was born just a few days before my first primary. Second son came a couple of years later. So we chose to remain in Wisconsin and raise the family there, which we don't regret. But to Ileana's point, I took a lot of time away from Washington to get to know your other colleagues, to socialize with them, to get to know them. So I think there is a point to be made there with modern air travel. It is very easy now for members to run home every weekend, not spend the downtime in D.C. getting to know each other. And when you are in Washington, it's a very compressed period of time. You're working 24-7 uh, practically with everything that you need to get done during that week before you go home again. So being able to juggle that time uh, constraint and the guilt you feel from being away from your family as I was, as much as I was during my time in Congress, all those things weigh on you. And I think uh, it does have an impact on the institution. Absolutely. And we hear a lot of, of former generation members saying that that was a huge change, that people don't bring their families there. They don't break bread with each other because it's a lot harder to attack someone who you've shared a meal with or your kids know each other. So there's obviously the interpersonal relationship dynamics that have changed. But to your point in the original combo about the incentive structure, new candidates, newly sworn in representatives are explicitly told, don't bring your family here because that's the quickest way to get painted as you've gone full swamp, right? You're a swamp creature now. Now your kids are in school. You don't even represent the district. So there's a lot of competing dynamics where it does sound nice to be the good old days of yesteryear, but they also face a very different incentive structure. I think we also make it harder on ourselves because I don't know a member of Congress who doesn't go home and just trashes the institution, Absolutely. how dysfunctional it is, how incompetent it is, how Washington's the enemy and it can't get anything right. And therefore, we set the expectations so low with our own constituents that it is hard then to get anything done. So and I was guilty of that, being able to run as an outsider, not being seen as gone Washington and being critical of the institution all the time. But as Ileana and I know, there's also a lot of good work that does get done behind the scenes that doesn't garner a whole lot of attention, that does work well for the American people and that isn't highlighted by the media, nor by most members of Congress themselves. Yeah, a lot of good stories, a lot of bipartisanship being done outside of the camera because of the incentive structure to show if it bleeds, it leads kind of model. But I want to ask a different question and, and, and one that you haven't had time to think about. But if you had a mulligan from your service, 
you had something to do over, a vote or someone you wish you pushed back against or maybe mentored a little differently, what was what's a do-over you wish you had? Well, I was glad that we gave uh, so many internship opportunities to young people. I used to be a teacher. That was my background. So I'm glad that uh, that we mentored a lot of young folks and gave them an experience. I asked for a mistake and you're bragging. Give me something. <laughs> but I would say that... Uh, um, I didn't spend as much time as I as I would have liked to be a real mentor to them. So many young people who could, who are the future of this country, and you want them to have a favorable impression of Congress and how it works. And uh, and I hear from from uh, when I'm a lobbyist now, and I lobby my members of Congress, and some of the interns say, "No, I, I don't even see." the member. I don't, I don't get to know them. So I wish that I would have been a better mentor to young people because like I say, I, I was a teacher. I know that children are the future. Young people are the future. I wish I would have spent more time on that. I think I was very much of a down-home legislator, so I don't regret any of the time I spent in my district. And I was an okay legislator, but but I'm mainly focused on constituent cases, helping people with immigration cases. Some people are more legislation minded. So maybe maybe I, I would have spent more time on the legislative part and not as much as constituent service. I don't know, maybe so. And uh, and then mentoring young people. I don't think I, I did a good enough job. Thanks for that. And I'll just tell you, I have a lot of students that are interns on the Hill and some are even in those very entry level jobs. They come with that full West Wing attitude of like, I am here. It is time to save the day. And then quickly realize like, this is tough up here. This is hard. And I can just tell you, I can literally, if they walk into my classroom, I can tell you by their faces that day of who saw and interacted with their member. It is just a light. It is just a glow. Like, man, I'm here for the right reasons. And I got seen today. That's a different day. So uh, as you as you mentioned that, anyone that is listening and in a position to just reach out to an intern who may you may have not even interacted with, the power dynamic can be used for such a positive thing. And from the members themselves, I can, I'm only, I'm preaching to y'all to, to recognize those folks, even if you, you can't do it on a daily basis. But to you, Congressman Kind, uh, your mulligan, I want to hear a mistake, a big one. Well, first of all, I, I agree with Ileana. I think more needs to be done to encourage the younger generation that public service is still the noble calling. And we need that next generation to be willing to step up and assume these burdens and have the patience of Joe because the wheels of democracy grind real slow. It's hard to get things advanced and get accomplished because of the nature of compromise and consensus building. It can be very, very frustrating. But on the legislative side, um, I do regret that I, I cast the vote on the war authorization uh, with Iraq. Uh, I felt it was important to get weapons inspection teams back in Iraq to see if there were weapons of mass destruction, but I wasn't sold on that. And I tried, along with some of my colleagues, tried hard to convince President Bush to let the inspection teams time to do their job because they weren't finding anything. But we know now he ordered them out and sent the 101st in, and the rest is history. And it had a dramatic impact on the course of events in the Middle East that we're still feeling, obviously, uh, today. And so those war type of decisions that members face, there's nothing more heady or more serious that we take. And you try your best to get it right, knowing that you're sending young people into harm's way. But sometimes uh, you don't have all the information uh, that you need and mistakes are made. You do the best with what you got. And I would say, um, you know, in uh, a mulligan moment in terms of voting, uh, when, when Ron brings up Iraq, uh, um, 
a vote that I wish I hadn't cast, but I was there with the with where the country was and where President Bill Clinton was, and that was the uh, the marriage equality uh, vote. And I and I regret that I that I codified that uh, marriage is defined as between a man and a woman. I'm very uh, active in the LGBTQ movement, and uh, and I was was the first Republican to vote for the Respect for Marriage Act to get marriage equality. But I regret that it took me a long time uh, to turn around on that issue. And uh, I regret that vote, but it felt right at the time. And boy, that was a fast moving um, uh, bill that really changed uh, America's feelings on marriage equality. So too bad I voted for things like that, like, like don't ask, don't tell. But I was able to have a, a do over and I was able to rectify that vote. I'm glad about that. I appreciate that. So thank you both for that. It's tough to admit, and it, it's even tougher for for politicians to to they they're more likely to dig their heels in and explain their vote, and and instead of just saying, "Hey, things change, opinions can change." That's how that's how things get a little bit different. So I know we only have a few minutes left. I do want to get a, a few more answers from you while I have you, and I want to know who's the best politician you've seen up on your your days here it can be a president a senator a, a your party or not but i t- i say this because bill clinton is just universally recognized of like homeboy walks into a room and it is like this guy can do whatever he wants i mean and people who full on dislike and and disagree with him from top to bottom say the same thing so i'm wondering who who dominated a room that we may not have suspect so i already drafted bill clinton who's your draft pick mine would be george herbert walker bush he was president when i got sworn in as so a bush 41 he was such a gentleman and he was a old school politician who really took time to to get to know you he was a one term president he just didn't shift quickly enough from international affairs to it's the economy stupid and uh, too bad that he lost. But I, I thought that he was an outstanding public servant who had a, a servant's heart and just did all the right things for all the right reasons. But, you know, timing is timing is important in politics. Casey, mine would probably have to be my wife. I've never seen a more <laughs> effective politician in my life. She knew how to lobby me, but more importantly, she knew how to talk to people back home. And that's why I always try to keep her close by during campaign season. But Bill Clinton's tough to beat. He always had ability to make you uh, feel at ease and comfortable around him. And then the focus was on you when you were talking to him, too, which is a, a unique skill to have. But my mentor, the one who kind of got me into public service, was a former senator from Wisconsin named Bill Proxmeyer. And he was known for going home and just traveling the state, shaking hands and talking to people. And because he did that as often and as well as he did, he didn't have to raise money during his campaigns. The campaigns kind of took care of themselves and everyone knew who Bill Proxmire was, what he was about. And practically everyone could claim they shook his hand at some point back in Wisconsin. And have it be true. I can't believe you let me take Bill Clinton and then drafted your wife. How is that going to go over with me? That's way to leave me out there. That was great. I'm not going to show this video today. Fair enough. Me neither. <laughs> um, all right. A uh, last one, maybe last one, but I do want to know it's 2024. Now you have seen a lot. You have experienced a lot, good, bad, ugly. Would you tell yourself back when you were thinking about running, which was probably a crazy thought to a lot of folks in your circles at the time, would you run today for the first time? Would you be a candidate today if you were just starting out? I would because I I was able to help so many people and I like doing that 
so I would run again, but I would try to do something about the, the atmosphere and the lack of civility and the toxic environment. But I, I would. I think there are a lot of things that I would still like to do that I didn't get to finish. Yeah, I would agree, Casey. I think uh, I would encourage people to run. I would run, too, because there's a heck of a lot you can get done uh, knowing what I know now. But I can't think of the stakes being any clearer or higher than they are today as far as running and protecting our institutions of democracy against certain authoritarian tendencies that are rising in this country. Democracy is hard work, but it's also very fragile. And it's something that we have to stand up and defend each generation. And I think that is uh, more poignant now uh, than ever. If you can keep it, as Franklin said, all the way back then, right? If you can keep it. And this is where I want to end because there are trends and they're mostly going against us right now. There's a lot of incentives that are perverse. There's a lot of performance art within Congress. Even the best intentioned lawmakers uh, don't face an incentive structure. And we just saw it with Senator Lankford in good faith negotiations, right? Try to hammer out a deal and then get thrown under the bus. So the incentive is not there to bipartisan legislate the way that we all say that we want, right? There's a lot of reasons for that. But I'm wondering where you think we are on our trajectory here. Are you optimistic? And don't just say you are because this is America and we always win, right? The, the Reagan, the better days are coming again. But are you optimistic, right? Like you, you've had a long life in this and you've seen the good, the bad, the ugly and everything in between. Are we in a good spot? And if not, are we trending right? And what can we do about it? I'm a little uh, troubled about about the, the way that it's going. The disrespect for institutions, as Ron pointed out, um, you know, the peaceful transfer of power, something so basic to our representative uh, democracy that, of course, you're going to have peaceful transfer of power. But when people deny election results and they and they say, oh, the the VP has the power to change the electoral votes and just crazy conspiracy theories, I would say that I'm a little bit worried right now. <clears throat> I'm worried about this next uh, presidential election. And I, and I, and I think it's, uh, uh, we need to respect our institutions once again. And, and it's up to the people. They're the ones who will decide. But when you lose a match, you've got to, you've got to say, hey, it was free. It was fair. I lost. And, and accept the consequences. We used to think of that as a foregone conclusion. We don't anymore. And we shouldn't think it is anymore. People are going to doubt the, the veracity and the fairness of this election. That worries me. Yeah, that's well said, Eliana. And I would just point out that as far as standards of living and life are concerned, I don't think you would want to be living anywhere, any place, any time than in the United States of America right now, throughout the history of the world, given everything that uh, we have going for ourselves. But having said that, I am also worried about our institutions of democracy and and the validity of the ballot box and how people are perceiving all of this and how and how deeply divided we are as a nation right now. And so this will be a consequential election uh, this fall, and it will have a tremendous impact on the future course that we take as a nation. And we saw that voter integrity, uh, our institutions are definitely under assault right now. And that couples into the fact that we're losing our standing in the eyes of our friends and allies around the globe. They're all looking at us, scratching their heads, saying, what the heck is going on in the United States of America today? And we have a major presidential candidate now is denouncing NATO, one of the most successful military alliances in the history of the world that has kept the peace in Europe for over 70 years. All that is placing doubt in people whether or not the United States is a country they can rely upon and, and that they should follow. Amen. Amen. 
I can't let you out without asking, what is your favorite hole in the wall restaurant in DC? Like if you just need like, get me feeling right again, where are you going? <laughs> you know, there's this cool place. I think it's called the 116 Club. It doesn't even have a sign outside. There's no menu. And uh, a friend of mine belongs to it. Not that it's a club. It's not really a fancy club. It's it's a hole in the wall. But they serve some good good crab cakes. And I think it's called the 116 Club. It's kind of a secret society. Anybody can go there. But uh, you have to find the right entrance. So that's my favorite place. Secrets out, Congressman. Yeah, I've got a, close, a place near my apartment, O'Reilly's Pub and Tavern. It's a good Irish pub. It's got oh, great yeah. live music Friday, Saturday night. And if you want a good pint of Guinness, that's a tough place to hang out and decompress for a while. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I, we proved it can be done, right? A D and an R. We just can't get to the point where you have to be out of Congress to make sure you guys are talking to each other this way. Bring that back into the institution. That's how this place operates. So thank you so much for your honesty. And thank you, Ron. It's always a pleasure to be with you, amigo. Uh, awesome. I got you. Thank you so much. And uh, hope to talk to you all again soon. All right, that was our latest episode, Bipartisan Style of Mastering the Room, presented by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. We were fortunate enough to be joined by two long-serving members of the lower house, the House of Representatives, Republican Ileana ross Leighton of Miami, Florida, and Representative Ron Kind, a Democrat from Wisconsin. And this, to me, is exactly what Mastering the Room is all about, that conversation, where they really represented what they cared about, but we also see with a D and an R having an honest, good faith, listening, healthy conversation with each other where we quickly realize that even though they see the world through their own political lenses, there is a lot that overlaps in, in terms of how we see the importance of institutions, the threats facing our democracy, and yes, they are real out there even if you want to pretend they don't exist. Members of both sides of the aisle can have conversations like this, nod with each other, laugh with each other, joke with each other. It still can be a way of doing business in D.C., which is exactly what Mastering the Room is supposed to bring about, having these conversations with folks who you may not have a chance to talk to all that much. And we were lucky enough to get some honest answers out of politicians. As Rep. Kind admitted, he is still a politician, even though he doesn't serve in elected office. You can't take the politician out of the politician. And it's good to get some really honest feedback about what they see in the, the state of our politics, our world, our D.C., and even some potential do-overs they wish they had when they look back in a reflective way over their decades of service. So thank you again for joining us. Do all of the things. Rate, review, subscribe, get your friends to listen to. Let's grow this thing so this becomes an, uh, an even better place to have these conversations where the, the conversations with guests we don't think we can get, all of a sudden they see this as an opportunity to reach people who want to have this type of thought process, who don't just want to exist in their own echo chambers. That's what we're trying to create here. And it really helps when you all expand the word. So thank you for your time on Mastering the Room. It is through these conversations that we can all become just a little bit more of a master of the room ourselves. Thank you and see you next time.